Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Occasionally, we release what we call an anatomy of a scene, where we break down a sequence of a documentary with the director, noting techniques and highlighting their choices. Today, Ken Jacobson talks with Stanley Nelson, co-director with Tracy E. Curry, of the Oscar-nominated Attica. Ken and Stanley look carefully at a scene which takes place just after the 1971 uprising at the New York State Prison has ended and the police have retaken the yard. If you enjoy this conversation, you may want to check out our previous pod with Stanley about the film. And if you like what you hear, please do subscribe to the pod. Coming up, Ken and Stanley dig deep into a scene from Attica. Can we take a few minutes and go through this one sequence? It's the sequence after the guards have done what is called taking control of the yard and things devolve from there. Ken, it's so great that you're doing this. I've always wanted to do this. Seriously, I want to teach a class where I go through a a film and just stop it and say what went into any given scene in any given moment. I'm really glad to hear that because preparing for these anatomy of a scenes has been one of the most satisfying parts of doing these podcasts. So in this sequence, we are looking at the moments in the yard after the police have stormed the yard and essentially taken control violently. When it begins, there's some black and white footage of the guards standing over the yard. And we hear one of the former prisoners, David Brosig, talking and saying they had control. The first sequence that Ken and Stanley watch follows the end of the uprising. The police have taken back the yard. We see black and white images of the prisoners being forcibly thrust to the ground. One of the prisoners suggests that since they already had control of the yard, the police were intent on getting revenge. So I'm going to stop it here because you were talking about how the events of day five proceeded in stages. And I think Stage one here is, as we see in the archival footage, we've gone from a situation where the guards are basically standing over the prisoners to one where they are pushing them down, knocking them over, forcing them to the ground, which tells us something else is about to happen. If you look at the whole scene from the beginning, the takeaway, this is probably stage four or five. But at at this stage, it goes from, okay, now we've taken back the prison, there's no doubt about it, the guards are are now in charge, to the real start of the torture and and the acts where there's no excuse, there's no reason for any of these things to happen. And, And this is the first action where the prisoners now are made to crawl. So I'm going to play through the next section. In this next sequence, we see the prisoners being forced to crawl through the latrines that they had dug early in the uprising, latrines that were now full of the human waste of hundreds of men. Several prisoners talk about the humiliation that they experienced. Arthur Harrison says that he had a simple choice. Do you want to live to tell your story or do you want to die? He says that he chose to live. So then things get worse, right? They deteriorate. We see footage and we hear... Arthur Harrison talk about people being made to crawl through shit. And we see scenes of crawling for the first time, and we see prisoners forced into the latrine. So now I think there's an added element of humiliation. Yeah, I mean, it's abject (laughs) humiliation. You know, one of the things that is really important and I like about the film is, is we show them digging the latrines at the beginning. 
and they're kind of jokey. You know, I didn't know what a latrine was, but we dug latrines. So as an audience, what the latrines are, because you see them being dug, and it's not just a ditch that they're crawling through. A little bit earlier in the film says that the latrines had started stinking by then from five days of human waste. So the shot of them crawling through the, the latrines is for some people, for most people, it's really interesting. That's the most shocking thing and the thing that they point to. When the film is over, when they ask questions, they're like, and you can hear people in the audience go like, oh no, oh no, that they're crawling through, as, as Arthur says, they're crawling through shit. The other thing I think about this scene is, is as he says that, he says, am I going to refuse to do it and die? Or am I going to you know, stay around to tell my story? I chose to live. Okay, you can see in his face, and, and, and for me, it's a reminder that these guys are all the baddest guys on the block. To have to crawl for these guys is just, you know, something that has stuck with them for 50 years. Because these are guys who would rather be shot, for most of them, usually, than crawl. But these guys were standing over them with guns and were going to actually murder them if they didn't do what they said. And they'd seen them murder 30 or more of their fellow prisoners. Yeah, I, I think it's an extraordinary soundbite. And it speaks to just the incredible inner strength that even in this moment of total humiliation and fear, he's able to recognize that he has the glimmer of a choice and he's going to take it. And he's going to somehow take control over his destiny in spite of everything here. I did want to ask one other question, which is, so we're seeing archival footage from inside the prison. At what point was the media allowed in? What is this archival footage we're seeing, this black and white footage? That's the New York State surveillance tapes. So the black and white stuff is all the New York State surveillance tapes. And they're up on, in the tower shooting down. And I guess during this thing, because the prison was taken back, they get on the catwalks and are shooting because it's a lot closer than the towers were. But that's all the New York State. No, they kept the press out. They kept the press out during this whole retaking. So the material you had to work with here was the state police surveillance footage and then some stills. Who was shooting the stills? Was that the media or someone else? My understanding is that nobody quite knows <laughs> where those beautiful color pictures came from. We don't know. Amazing. But, but they're amazing pictures and they were definitely shot by professionals. So let's play through and get to that sequence. In this next somewhat longer sequence, we see a series of still photographs of the prisoners being forced to march naked, their hands raised over their heads. One of the members of the Observers Committee, Senator John Dunn, says that when he saw these naked bodies lined up snaking around the yard, he couldn't help but think of the betrayals of African Americans who had been herded onto slave ships. Arthur Harrison and the other prisoners talk about the horrible experience of being naked in the yard. So we have, I think it's James Asbury who says they had us marching around the yard with our hands interlocked on our heads. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then he actually demonstrates it. And then you cut to stills in which we see that very thing happen. And it ushers in this montage of these extraordinary, hard to watch color stills of the men in the yard stripped naked with their hands on top of their heads. And it is a full montage of just these shots. And then you, who is it who says, when he saw these naked bodies, it reminded me of African-Americans being herded onto slave ships. 
Senator John Dunn. One of the members of the Observer Committee. And then this sequence further deepens the story because you take one of the stills and you pan over to the right and we see Frank Big Black Smith. So I'm going to play it through that part. In the same color format, we now see shots of prisoner Frank Smith, who was placed lying flat on a table with a football under his throat. As recounted by Daniel Callahan, who was one of the National Guardsmen who had been brought in for medical evacuation, Frank Smith was told that if he lets the football fall, the guards are going to shoot him. He was then told to get to his feet. He tried, he stumbled, he fell. The guards hit him with clubs on his back and between his legs, and he was crying out, don't do this, don't do this. And then you can hear Frank Smith screaming as he went through the prison. One of the things that, that we wanted to do here is we don't see anybody on camera because we didn't want to break it up. We just wanted to, to leave it with these stills of these new bodies. So we hear people talking in voiceover. But we don't ever, ever cut to the talking heads during this sequence because we wanted you just to stay with these horrible pictures. And when John Dunn says they reminded you of slave ship, we wanted to, as you're thinking, oh, this picture really quickly that's on now, we wanted to actually have to hold it for a second. So you see their reflection in that puddle. And you see them, you see their reflection, their reflection almost like ghosts. And then we pan over to Big Black and, and, and the football. We knew that that picture existed when we did the interviews. So we had people talk about that. Two or three people describe the fact that they all heard the same thing, that, you know, nigger, if that football falls, we're going to kill you. And they had no doubt that they would kill him because they had killed other people. So that was a place where we had that picture and, and we, we had people talk about it. The other thing I should say, because these guys are totally nude, their penises are hanging out, and we just said that we're going to go for it and, and that, you know, if Showtime wants to fuzz it or whatever they want to do, then they can do it. But I'm not going to try to avoid showing these guys totally nude because that's what they were. We could shot them from the waist up, but it's not as powerful. The shot with Frank with the football under his chin. Why is this an important image unto itself? They had pulled Frank Smith out because he had been a vocal and he had been a visual. You know, they had seen him during the rebellion. And so we see that not only did they randomly kill and injure people, but that they pulled the leaders out, anybody that was on TV, they pulled them out for special torture. And it's so petty and so cruel. We also know that Frank Smith was a good guy. He was protecting the observers. He was the guy who, when they yelled security, when they had to get rid of Russell Oswald, when he said he wanted to go, Frank Smith was a guy who escorted him out and made sure he was protected. But because he made himself known, he was singled out for torture. There's no way to dismiss this. This is petty. It's torture. You cannot possibly come up with any other excuse for this. You could say, oh, you know, we shot that guy because he was running at me with a knife or come up with some excuse. But this image speaks for itself. It's torture. So continuing on, we're then entering the final phase of this torture. But before you pull out on the image and we see the police standing up above Frank looking down at him. So the perpetrators are visible in the same shot, which I think is important. You understand that they're doing it. They're not stopping it. 
later on, one of the things that we hear, I think it's the later, maybe it's before, is the National Guard's guys who are almost crying and saying that we couldn't stop it. We were part of something that was horrible and wrong, but we had no way to stop it. They're individual guys and, you know, against hundreds of people who were inflicting this torture. In the next sequence, prisoner Arthur Harrison describes that having been forced to crawl through the latrines, the prisoners were now being pushed through prison corridors in which the guards were lined up on both sides. And the prisoners are forced to run the gauntlet between the guards who beat them with their clubs. They were also forced to run with their bare feet on glass that had been broken during the uprising. The two National Guardsmen interviewed in the film, Daniel Callahan and Ted Crawford, then talk about how horrible it was for them that the prisoners were being forced through this gauntlet, but they felt there was nothing that they could do about it. So we haven't talked a lot about your music, but music's really important in this sequence, and it's pretty dark and ominous. And then you pull out the music for a beat, and then it comes back, and we hear bang, 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 a sequence of bangs in the music. And then it takes us into the corridor where the prisoners were forced to run the gauntlet and they were beaten and forced to run over glass. We wanted the music to help separate these different types of torture that they were doing, but we also knew that the music had to be of one piece. So we didn't have 20 seconds of one music and then 20 seconds of another. So it's kind of one continuous piece that goes into different movements, if you will. It's subtle. We wanted the music to be ominous because that's what we could feel here. But also to not be too, you know, it's just helping a little bit. It's not too much. It's just the wind at the back of these scenes. And then in the sequence, you give us some sound bites from the two National Guardsmen who you interviewed. Those interviews were really, I think, important in the film and no more so than in this sequence. They're very emotional uh, about the scene. They're still very broken up about what happened that day. And I think part of it is because they feel that even though they were not doing any of the torture, they did not do any of the killing. They were there for medical evacuation and, and to help with the medical teams. But that they should have done something. That's a horrible feeling when you're in that situation. And in reality, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing they can do. But they also feel that they were part of it because they didn't stop it. Now, maybe they should have tried. I, I, I don't know. But they didn't. And, and they still feel horrible. So I think that one of the things that happens is in, in some ways they further validate what you're hearing and what you're seeing. Because these are two white guys, and they're two members of the National Guard, and they're talking about the exact same thing that the prisoners are talking about seeing. You got to believe it, and you got to feel it. The final sequence takes us outside the walls of the prison. We see an officer trying to comfort a hostage family's member by putting his hand on their shoulder. Then we have a series of shots of stricken family members of the hostages showing what they were experiencing. So then we have a few more testimonials from former prisoners talking about having to run over glass. And then the sequence ends and you take us out of the yard. And the first place we go is this still of hostage families and an officer with his hand on the shoulder of one of them. We, we cut from the officers inside torturing the people to the concern and the love and, and the camaraderie and everything that they're feeling with the families outside. We, we just see it right there. They have no concern for the prisoners and, and, and actually feel that they're justified 
in murdering, torturing the prisoners, and they have only love and care for the people outside. It's pretty obvious. But I also think that the scene also says that the people outside also were frightened and worried about their loved ones inside. That too was true for them. I think in a kind of an ironic way, the grief that they're expressing almost stands in for the grief that we're feeling for what we've just heard about from the prisoner point of view. Anything else about the sequence that you wanted to add? I, I, I just think it, it's a really powerful sequence. And I think that then the sequence that follows, for some reason, I'm just really affected by the sequence that follows with the inmates' families and how wildly they rush off to see what's happening to their loved ones in the hospital. It's just an amazing scene where people are not conscious of the camera at all. They've just abandoned their uh, consciousness of the camera and they're, all they're thinking about is getting to their loved ones. And, this scene is also a reminder that the prisoners don't have any family outside the walls here, so they're suffering alone. I think that sequence is certainly one of the most powerful in the film, and it's something that is going to stay with the audience for a long time. I think you all did an amazing job with it, so congratulations. And congratulations on the film, Stanley. It's a tremendous achievement. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really great to hear that from you, Ken.